0: Welcome to Before the Applause, the Fringe of Colour podcast. I'm Brianna Pagato, the creative director of Fringe of Colour Films. Edinburgh-based Fringe of Colour was set up in 2018 by our founder and technical director, Jess Bruff, to support Black and people of colour creatives through the August festivals. Last year, we launched our online film festival, and as part of that programme, we commissioned a collection of new work by some talented artists. To celebrate those films, we are revisiting conversations with the filmmakers. In the podcast, we delve into the creators' intentions, creative processes, and what it meant to be part of our festival. We spit some truths about the arts and entertainment industries, and we refuse to take ourselves too seriously while we do it. In the first of two specials, we journey through some of the themes which have threaded through the Fringe of Colour Films Festival. Exploration surrounding stories of lived experience through humour, queerness, sexual and gender expression, as well as identities of people of colour and blackness globally, are some of the core aspects and inspirations for our creators. The work they create from these various themes is astounding and continues to show how immeasurable the imagination is. These artists haven't had the opportunity to make films, or even attempt to. This festival exists because of the artists. If it wasn't for them making this work, we wouldn't be here. And it's so important for us to have this platform to honour them and their existence. Storytelling is key when it comes to film, education and even life itself – The need to keep repeating stories until they are known in order to pass them on, to interpret them in our own ways, and to learn from what has come before is vital. These are experiences of our histories, our dreams and legacies, and if anything, can keep our cultural identities intact. We don't want these stories to become lost languages, and particularly in our communities, we have to retain our identities and prevent them being appropriated or profited from unfairly. Two women who have continued the art of storytelling are Hannah Lavery and Mara Mengis. Poet, playwright, performer and director, Hannah Lavery's film The Drift is a journey through history, through Scottishness, through belonging and through grief. An autobiographical spoken word show The Drift sees her exploring her legacy of being mixed in Scotland, left to her by her father and mother and their respective journeys, mixed race, in Scotland. The the piece is a kind of spoken word
1: show. I suppose that's probably important to sort of say outright. And it begins with a poem about rage and the idea of meeting rage. And I think for me, when I started to explore the grief that I felt after losing my father, who was a very absent father, so it was quite a complicated grief in that way. What was at the centre was almost this kind of manifestation of rage. And I I think throughout the, the whole piece, which is not necessarily what you see in the film, but there's this sort of reoccurring, almost this reoccurring character of rage. So I've sort of begin it there. And I begin kind of really, kind of firmly within my childhood, actually, and within all that, missing and absence, and so that's that's where the f- the film begins, and then we move into um that that moment of 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 being told about my father's death, drifting away is that ex- it's the way rage is, has kind of permeated, and I suppose it's that idea of thinking about intergenerational trauma as well, and how that manifests, and it seemed to manifest in this kind of what felt initially a quite a destructive anger but actually by the course as, as you know in, throughout the peace and throughout that grief I realised that getting to know my father in a way and my own history it, that rage and that anger was actually felt quite righteous and quite freeing. When my grandmother died then followed by my dad it felt like like all of the colour like literally left my family and left my, myself and and I suppose it was sort of trying to explore what that meant to me but also in that exploration of kind of of family and of my dad and trying to kind of come to terms with his behaviors, with his kind of pain and and just stuff as a child that just felt incredibly kind of traumatic to sort of have this father who was sometimes incredibly present and sometimes just was gone and what that did to me. And then to realize that so much of that shame he carried and so much of that pain that he carried was rooted and it, and and I suppose when I began to kind of when i was like initially wrote started to write this as a series of poems um in twenty four twenty fourteen just after he died, I just started to kind of I couldn't stop myself writing try and I think writing is a way that i try and un you know unpack myself i suppose and i and i didn't i kind of was surprised about how suddenly so much was about him as a kind of brown or black man like how much of that was about that and I didn't and I was initially I was just kind of you know who was this man why does this hurt so much why why is this so difficult why why did he treat me this way why did he you know and then realizing that he carried so much of the humiliation of racism and he his life was i um, so blighted by that and so stunted by that I think so much of my work is about trying to find a place to belong And I think growing up mixed race, I mean, being mixed race means you never belong anywhere. And you've got to kind of come to terms with that. You're always fearing rejection from whatever community that you partly half belong to. Um, And rejection is such a big part of your identity. And it always feels quite fragile. In fact, quite difficult to assert yourself. There was something that felt incredibly not affirming but just felt incredibly welcoming to be brought into this space that with other people of color and to feel like there was a place for my story and you know in one ways it is a, an outpouring of grief there is something vulnerable there is something incredibly personal but i am talking about the legacies of 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 slavery the legacies of colonialism the complicated history the, the it's political and it's and it's and i've spent a long time crafting it <laughs>
0: Hannah explores grief, trauma, identity, and anger, amongst other things, and the unpacking of these things takes inspirational forms through her writing. When creators like Hannah talk here about fringe of Colour being a space to find a sense of belonging, that further cements the need for this platform. While she talks openly about being mixed-race, and finding it hard to constantly navigate her identity in various cultures. The bigger picture is that through her writing and openness, she has opened a space for many others to explore the in between of identity. Award-winning performance storyteller Mara Mengis is extremely passionate about the power of story and is the founder of the Kuale Sculpture Park and Heritage Trail, a unique social project in Kenya where culture, heritage, and stories are the basis for regenerating a rural community. Her film Consequence sees Laris, a young woman fleeing a plantation, who is wondering whether she has made the right decision. She is herself then told a story that chimes with the themes of choices and their consequences.
2: Yeah, so when people first start watching the film or start listening to the film, it's um it's a story and and I'm a performance storyteller, so it's rooted in the in the oral tradition. Um, so it's really about sort of sharing these images, really sort of visual images, um, and placing them in the mind so that I guess it's taking people into a different world. And it's the story of a woman. Um, and this woman realizes that she actually has to make a decision. Um, and sometimes these decisions that we that we all make every single day, they you know sometimes we're not. Not sure if they're the right decision or the wrong decision, but whatever the decision we've made, we have to live with the consequences of it um and so it's really about this woman who decides that her life is not going in the direction that it needs to go, and so she decides to change. She goes from survival mode into living mode um and it's not it's not an easy journey for her, but along the way, she meets somebody who reminds her a little bit more of who she is um and and she does that by telling a story so that's really what um how it starts is, I guess, it's two sort of two stories that kind of complement each other. Um, but yes, it's it's consequence. I called it consequence just because I I feel that you know every single day we're all making different cons- different decisions, um, and and we have to live with the consequences of those decisions, regardless of of what they might be. When I first started my storytelling journey, I guess it started with all those stories that I heard when I was a kid, and I wanted to share them with my kid, um, and. And I think one of one of the real privileges of being a storyteller is that you actually understand how stories impact people on a much deeper level. It's not just about entertaining. It's not just about oh, here's a way to pass um, time together. Um, they're actually a really important part of our humanity and a really important part of of connecting us with who we are and who we come from and and um, you know the sorts of people that we can be. And and we often and I often find that when we're when we tell these stories, you. You know they they connect us with different people regardless of uh cultural, social, whatever kind of backgrounds because they're you know, the human experience, we all have the same emotions and we all going through our different trials and tribulations and we all feel alone and we all feel desperate and we've all been hurt and we've all made terrible decisions. Um and we've also had the good side. So these stories really um they connect us on such a on such a deep level, um, and I feel that they also allow us to become much more forgiving as people. Because if once you know somebody's story and you understand why somebody does the things that they do, you realise that actually, if I was in that person's shoes, chances are I might have made the same decisions. So um, I feel storytelling is just such an important part of um, of the human experience, and it's almost a shame that it's it's sort of been lost over the years it's become something that old people tell to little children and nothing could be further from the truth you know I think adults need stories as much as anybody else so it's really you know part of my uh I, I suppose what I really want to do with the storytelling is to is to kind of re to resurface it or to bring the dynamism back into storytelling and allow people to see actually this is such a an important world that I need to belong to and be part of, um, and be able to share my own stories. So, so that's really my my motivation
0: just now. Mara's passion to bring storytelling to a new generation comes through, and that's so important for our audiences and more. The need for all generations to have these stories to pass on, last the tests of time. And Mara is completely right when she talks about how storytelling resonates on a far deeper level. We as humans all feel love, pain, sadness, grief, shame, pride, and other emotions. By sharing our stories in all their diverse and wonderful forms, we can hopefully help engage across cultures and start to understand one another. Through continuing to weave storytelling through our cultural programs, we can continue to push diversity and narratives that are not only inspiring, but ones that can change how we connect with one another. People, communities, and societies have thousands of stories, but these also have facts that can explain actions and behaviours. It's more important than ever that we support people creating the spaces to do this. Comedy can be used as an armour by many when it comes to the more serious aspects of life, but it can also open up conversations. It can make people lower their guard, soften stigma, and momentarily remove judgement. With subjects like race, comedians both grassroots and high-profile have been using comedy for decades to continue the conversation. There's an unspoken bond when you laugh about something that may be considered taboo, and if you can laugh in the face of adversity, it can show a certain strength of character. But sometimes we just need to laugh. There's an art when it comes to not crossing certain lines, when it comes to comedy, and two people who are adept at that are Nish Kumar and Athena Kukblenu. British stand-up comedian and radio presenter Nish Kumar is no stranger to the main stage. He's hosted BBC Two's The MASH Report, BBC Radio 4 Extra's topical comedy show Newsjack, the Comedy Central series Droll and Nish First the World, and much more. In Trouserless Conversation sees Kumar engage in an illuminating and insightful set of interviews with Sanjeev Bashkar of Goodness Gracious Me, Desiree Birch of Too Hot to Handle and Rose Matafeyu of Horndog. Kumar and his interviewees speak on craft and their personal journeys in intimate and hilarious conversations.
3: I thought it would be interesting to share how artists of colour, like their story of how they got into whatever it is that they were, whatever bit of uh, comedy they'd ended up getting into. And so I just uh, started phoning around. And to be fair, everybody was very enthusiastic, by the, enthused by the idea of it. Um, and so I conducted these conversations, which basically it transpired in one of the conversations that I was not wearing trousers because it's a pandemic. And I don't think I should have to explain myself to anyone, but it sort of transpired quite quickly that I was not wearing trousers. And so that, as an idea for a film, it felt like a very strong concept, um, a a way of uh, hooking in what we were talking about. It was out of a desire that I had to share some stories of people you might see on the television who are incredibly successful and how they got into whichever bit of comedy they got into. And the title itself came from the fact that I don't think any of my trousers fit would fit me anymore. The first person I interviewed was Sanjay Bhaskar, uh, who is a, a friend but is also somebody who I've looked up to my entire adult life really. I think we talked about this in the film, but I saw Goodness Gracious Me on television when I was about 11 years old. And then I saw them live at the Hackney Empire, which is the first live comedy show I ever went to see when I was about 13 years old. Goodness Gracious Me was, I don't even know, like 1977 punk Sex Pistols, Year Zero for British Asian comedy fans. You know, I'd grown up watching comedy. I didn't know that people who looked like me ever did it. And then not only were they doing it, but they were doing it in this really... Assertive way. And they had a real, you know, I, I think at the time we didn't understand the ramifications of the show being called goodness gracious me, you know, and the, the idea that Peter Sellers had done these movies in the seventies where he was playing an Indian guy. And, you know, he had a sort of, I mean, a real sheen of (laughs) brown face paint in some films that have, let's be honest, not aged well. I guess I had no idea. For my parents watching it, it must have felt incredibly empowering because they had taken the title from that and they'd even taken one of the songs from that and had Nitin Sawni sort of do a kind of bungra remix of it. And so right from the beginning, the statement was being made that this was uh, Asians taking control of why people were laughing. So if you knew all of that, it did all of that. But if you didn't know all of that, it still did all of that programming on you by the content of the sketches and the tone of the and the tone of the comedy and so i just selfishly really wanted to talk to him about his career i i you know i i assembled bits and fragments from reading different interviews and from talking to him over these because then i actually my one of my first jobs in tv was writing for the reboot of the kumars uh, in i think 2013 and so I've worked for Sanj and Mira a little bit and I know them both a little bit. And I was just, I was really curious to just speak to him and see how, and, and, you know, the shape of his career was so interesting, you know, and now there's a whole generation of people that know him from like quite a serious ITV drama about people getting murdered. You know, like there's a, there's a whole group of people now that know him from Unforgotten. And so I was really interested in the arc of, of that career and and also I really wanted to know about how they got started, because, you know, the, the mid 90s was a very different cultural environment, largely because of what they subsequently achieved. Things moved on and changed by the time I started. But the mid 90s were a very different time period for people starting in the arts. If you were an artist of colour, I mean, it, it's there just wasn't British Asian comedy at that point it just didn't really exist in the same way um and there was a sketch show called the real mccoy which was a black british sketch show and that was like one of the few things you know that was exciting in of itself but really most of the comedy we absorbed was <laughs> african-american comedy like that that was the comedy that we were all like asian kids were into in this country there's like a great the, one of the hardest things to talk about as an Asian is when people talk about cultural appropriation and how terrible it is. And for British Asians my age, we're always like, yeah, it's so terrible, in the back of our minds, knowing we were the ultimate cultural appropriators. We were the ultimate. British Asian kids in the early to mid-90s invented a cultural identity out of uh, the first couple of Snoop Dogg records and Chris Rock stand-up comedy. That was basically how we invented, and and goodness gracious me, even picked that up. There are sketches by two characters that refer to themselves as the Bangra muffins who have an idea of Asian identity that's like bits of Hindi slang and then like Jamaican patois. <laughs> like it, they they actually goodness gracious me lasered in on that specific trope and idea.
0: Nish used humour to archive key moments for people in comedy and brings versatility to our festival through his film. His nostalgic observations and recounts of his childhood show how important it is to have visibility in order to inspire. Would his career be the same now if he didn't have people like Sanjeev Bashakar? This is also a fascinating look at how decades can change rapidly when it comes to the arts and how we can look back now and gasp or disbelieve aspects of cultural appropriation. His commentary also on his appropriation of Black tropes, for example, shows how influential some figures are. Niche has used self-awareness, and his relatability has been able to retell his guests' experience through the realness of comedy, but also creates empowerment through these interviews. It makes everything feel more grounded and instills a strength of identity. British stand-up comedian, filmmaker and writer Athena Kukblenu blenu has received numerous accolades and written for the likes of The Guardian, Time Out and Stylist. In her film, WPAU, White People Are Unreasonable, she explains why she didn't attend the Black Lives Matter protests in 2020 and it being as much of a no-brainer as the unreasonableness of egg mayonnaise sandwiches. It's
4: kind of like a the biggest elephant in in the biggest room ever, the, the lack of conversation we have about the white reaction to brown skin. (laughs) <laughs> it's just sort of been consistently bizarre, you know. Through if you don't cut, if you don't pick up, if you don't create enough rubble, we'll cut off your arms. Um, if we don't exterminate you, then we won't be able to live in this land peacefully. So we're just going to exterminate you. You know, I was just um, reading something today about slave, fact, the violence of of kind of what happened in in the Americas and in, in and in the Caribbean with the sort of um, with forced labor of African peoples. I mean, we, we we sort of there's this weird thing like we kind of know it but we're happy with it. And yet one black person mugs somebody and all of a sudden black people are muggers. So hold on a minute, you mugged the world. (laughs) Why do we have this stereotype? You literally robbed the world. I I learned last year, um, Working with an academic called Marlene Dolt, who is Haitian and works in America. But she said, you know, the, the biggest genocide of the past, of recent modern times, was in the Southern Americas. About 70 million people, indigenous people, sort of dead. dead you know, 70 million, you know. And we, we think about, and then we, we know about the 15 million in the Congo. And these are at the hands of, of white supremacists. Um, and so if, we, if we're if we going to talk about Black Lives Matter, and w- w- why don't we just talk about how unreasonable white people are? Like, you're so unreasonable, we have to come here and tell you we're allowed to be alive like that's how basic it has to get like oh okay they're not getting the message so what we've got to do is strip it down to its raw simplicity by the way did you not know that we we're allowed to be alive like if we told them that 500 years ago would they have changed their minds like, of, of course not we have a problem too as black people like a really good example is a big part of the black lives matter movement was decolonizing the curriculum if we taught stuff in schools then we'd be better as a society so what are we going to wait 50 years for the schools to change or why don't you just teach your, teach your kids like you you, know, you we are sending our kids to white schools and we're expecting, you know, schools that are, come from a white system of oppression that are controlled by white people that tell these schools what to teach. We're expecting them to, to benefit us. Like, I think we do lean too much on the idea of, of wider white society changing and, and we don't think enough about how we can better equip ourselves to to thrive within it whilst we live in diaspora. diaspora. Um, and yes, it is harder work. So what? You know, I didn't make the rules up. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't, I didn't make up. And there's privilege in that, you know, okay, fine, I'm a very literate person, I'm educated, I know where to find black books, uh, blah, 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 blah. But now, like, with, with the democratization of, of of information, like, you can go online and you can and you can teach. You know, once your kids go, come back in From the outside world, your home should be a fortress against white supremacy. And you don't have to be an academic to to make that fortress. Um, And running around saying Black Lives Matter has a benefit to wider society. But whilst society is taking a long time to change, there there are other things we can be doing as well. I think the hardest thing I found with this film, and I generally find this with my comedy, is that I tend to have to find a way to talk to people who might disagree with what I'm saying initially. Or maybe by the end of of, of me saying it, but I, I i I have this thing where I say I like to make people who disagree with me laugh, not as a challenge, but just to kind of just to kind of make a point to my art like what 's the point of saying sensible things if if you 're not making a kind of positive difference so how do i how do I tell all of these amazing people who are who want to make my life better that it's not enough you know how do i how, how do I have that conversation how do I, I I like look at something that is ultimately positive, but also point out why it could be negative and so that came with the with the writing really and that and that's where i got i got saved by the egg mayonnaise sandwich which is sort of a little a little comedy trick that we use in comedy it's a bit of like sugar coating a pill isn't it it's like i've told you this but oh isn't this funny and egg mayonnaise sandwiches are disgusting as well like they do i do despise them <laughs>
0: Through her mix of storytelling, stand-up, and social commentary, Athena offers a no-nonsense delivery on her thoughts when it comes to BLM, how society needs to change, and a fantastic way of stripping things right back to their bare bones to expose the problems faced by Black people, but also some of the ways that things can be tackled. Her sincerity to her comedic art form is admirable. The positivity she brings through, wanting to make people laugh, even in the face of adversity, and the disagreements they hold with her narrative is why she is praised. Comedy can always carry a strong weight of mockery with it, but you will always find that this connects with audiences. Humor is interwoven into the fabric of our existence, and without it, it wouldn't amplify or complement the other emotions we go through. Comedy is also about changing what we think, and maybe even what we do. It's about challenging our thoughts and behaviours in a way sometimes that stays with us. It's vital to understand the job comedy can do in actively providing a counterbalance to bigotry and prejudice, as well as understanding the types of humour that reinforce negative stereotypes. Nish and Athena show different sides with their comedy, and a hint at what the talent pool landscape holds. Again, it's why Fringe of Colour is vital, And it's why it's so important for these voices to be amplified. Through this, we hope to explore the process of transitions, in betweens, and the grey area of life through art. We are on a journey with our filmmakers and writers as they help us to capture, to reimagine, and to envision our collective future. Fringe of Colour Films was born out of a concern for Black artists and artists of colour being left behind during the global pandemic that has changed the shape of the art world, potentially irreversibly. Our festival continues to change shape and form, depending on the needs of our artists. This is more important than ever before. Fringe of Colour Films is running online from the 1st to the 15th of August, but these podcasts will be available indefinitely. You can find more information at fringeofcolour.co.uk. This podcast has been presented and produced by me, Brianna Pagato, produced and edited by Helena Rafai. Audio descriptions are by Mackenzie Woodyard and music by Caleb Azuma Nelson. Thanks again for joining us for Before the Applause.